So I think this is actually a really interesting point to see where I think a lot of these conversations around loan forgiveness are frustrating to me, both in the direct, like the, the loan forgiveness conversation itself, and then the problem being so much harder to fix than it seems, right? Because if I'm advising the Department of Education, there's not a lot they can do without Congress. And Congress is not going to do anything in the near future. <laughs> we are SOL. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? So a lot of the conversation around student loans, when I'm getting pushback from people um, about forgiveness generally, is people saying, you know, we, we shouldn't do forgiveness unless we can also fix the underlying problems. Or we shouldn't do forgiveness unless we can also, you know, send a check to people who have already paid off their loans. Or instead of blanket forgiveness, we should do this other policy proposal that I've just come up with that's nuanced and perfect. And that's all great and right, <laughs> basically, right? Like we have to fix the underlying problems. But right now the Department of Education under existing law has the power to forgive student loans. 20 USC 1082A for the nerds. That gives the <laughs> Secretary of Education the power to, to forgive loans held by the Department of Education. Any of those other proposals need to go, need, we need a new law. We need legislation to come from Congress. And if we need a new law, we need 60 votes in the Senate. And if we need 60 votes in the Senate, you're looking at finding an education proposal that can get the agreement of all 50 Democrats, which is very unlikely, and then even if you can achieve that, you need to find 10 Republicans who want to expand access to higher education. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not possible. It's not in the realm of possibility in this decade, at least. Right. So I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, how we can address the education issue. I don't have many suggestions for how we can actually realistically um, in our current political reality, solve this crisis. You know, the, the Senate is just, it is there, it is blocking the way on just about everything that would be useful in solving the underlying crisis. And I, I don't know how to get around that. I, wow. I mean, that, I mean, you're not wrong, to be honest. Um, I had a whole different question, but my mind is blown right now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to, 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 uh, sidetrack this entire interview I'm like, with my was, rant about the Senate. <laughs> that was a downer, man. If you're looking for some guidance on what to do with your student loans and you need an outside perspective on what your options are, Student Loan Planner may be the resource for you. Schedule a paid consultation with one of Student Loan Planner's student loan consultants who will walk you through what your options are. Student Loan Planner has a 99% satisfaction rate and a whole person-focused approach when helping their clients. If you're worried about saving for retirement, going on vacation, and the impact of your student loan repayment on those goals, Student Loan Planner consultants understand and respect those concerns and keep that in mind while working with you. Please note, if you're listening to this episode in 2022, you have until October 31st, 2022 to submit your public service loan forgiveness waiver. I've also included a link in the show notes. I'm proud to partner with Student Loan Planner. And if you're interested in scheduling your student loan paid consultation, go to the following link, michelleismoneyhungry.com backslash student loan plan. Finally, I would like to thank the Plutus Foundation for its support of the Michelle is Money Hungry podcast. The Plutus Foundation supports financial content creators with grants, networking, learning events, and podcasts. Twice a year, Plutus provides grants for financial literacy projects of all types. The foundation highlights excellence throughout the Plutus Awards, and you can see how you can make a bigger impact with your audience at Plutus Voices and the Plutus Impact Summit. Go to PlutusFoundation.org for more information. Please note, Michelle is Money Hungry is for entertainment purposes only. Content should not be considered financial advice, and listeners are encouraged to do their own due diligence. Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry, a podcast that has real and empathetic conversations that often focus on the intersection of policy and the financial conversations we're really afraid to have. I'm your host, Michelle Jackson, and this summer I'm having conversations all about the potential for student loan forgiveness and what will happen if we move forward with the policy and what happens if we don't. 
So my name is Matt Lane. I am a public sector attorney. That was too closed-ended a question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to actually ask you the following question, and we're going to go from there. Did you take out loans for college, and what was that experience like? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I did. I actually didn't take, I guess, relatively a small amount for, for undergrad, a lot of that cost was uh, scholarships and such, but then I went to law school. And if you go to law school in the United States and you do not come from money, you are taking out a lot of loans. So I did that, uh, took out a lot of loans, graduated with about $250,000 of student loan debt. What has that debt been like in your life? Like, has it been an active presence? What's been the experience of living with that kind of debt, even though you are in what potentially is a very high earning career, depending on how you position yourself within your career? Yeah. I mean, this answer is very different because of, um, I'm sure we'll get into the, the public service loan forgiveness program. Because of that program, I was able to take a job that was more meaningful to me, but also lower paying. I'll be making income based repayments but I don't necessarily have to stress about the full balance of my loans. Um, Without that program, I I probably would have been looking for a different career path, making more money. Why did you feel like you should be working for the public good? And how did you even find out about this loan forgiveness program? Because it's actually pretty new. I went to law school with the idea of, I want to be involved in government. I want to find a way to help people. Um, I think the the idea of law school originally was something I considered as an undergrad, basically just seeing how many politicians had law degrees, right? And thinking, okay, there's something that, that I'm interested in that's a way to help people. And all of these people have law degrees. So maybe that's something I should consider. Now, in retrospect, all of those people have law degrees because a lot of lawyers are rich and rich people can be politicians. But <laughs> <laughs> at the time, it, it was uh, that was sort of the reason I started looking at law school. Once I got into law school and found other ways that I could use a law degree to help people, you know, there were there were other other routes that I that I looked into. But yeah, it was it was always my my plan to uh, go to law school as a means of helping people, particularly be, being involved in public service and and the like. So that was really my intent the whole time when I was in law school. The public service loan forgiveness program was talked about pretty regularly, I think, at the time. So this was 2009 to 2012. I was in law school. Uh, The program came came about in 2007, but there was no real guidance for, you know, the first seven or eight years. But there was a lot of discussion about it because everyone at that school had a lot of debt or wealthy parents, but mostly a lot of debt. And so, you know, you recognize that only a certain percentage of of law school graduates are going to go into those big firms with those big paychecks and everyone else is going to need to find some way to deal with their loans. And the the loan forgiveness program had a lot of promise on that front and was really played up, um, you know, by the career services and all of those uh, different programs within the law school. What was your real life experience with the program? (laughs) Um, It is frustrating. (laughs) I will say it is frustrating. There are so many unnecessary hoops to jump through, uh, unnecessary limitations. And this is, you know, true of American policy. Generally, we we always are very much more interested in making sure that people can't game the system than making sure it's easy for the people who need the system to access it. So one example that I have dealt with, my loan started with a company called Nelnet, then went to Sally May, then to Navient then to FedLoan, and now FedLoan's leaving, so they're going to go somewhere else soon. But when I got to Sally May, I told them I want to do the public service loan forgiveness program. You know, am I on track? What's, what do I need to do? And they looked at my sort of collection of loans. You know, when I was taking loans out, I took whatever I needed to pay for school, right? So I've got Stafford loans plus loans, FFEL, and they're all the same to me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's You have your loan balance, you have your interest, they're all the same terms. It's just different ways that you qualify for these types of loans. Sally Mae has all of them in one bucket. I send them one check every month. Uh, It's all the same to me. So Sally Mae says, yep, you're on track, great. They move me over to Navient. (laughs) Navient says, yep, you're on track, great. Uh, And then they send me an email a few months later saying, hey, FedLoan is now going to be 
the specialist for all public service loan forgiveness. So we're going to ship you over there. I get to FedLoan and FedLoan says, yep, this all looks great, except oh. three of your loans are FFEL loans, which do not qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Now we can make them qualify by moving those FFEL loans to direct consolidation loans. And actually, before <laughs> we go deeper, what's mm-hmm. an FFLE loan for people who don't know what that is? It's a family federal education loan, I think it stands for. Okay. Um, I honestly could not describe the difference between an FFEL and a Stafford loan. It's all functionally the same. Direct consolidation loan, you know, to the consumer, it's all the same. Mm. Um, I'm sure there's, there's back-end differences, but to the, to the person with all these student loans, these are all functionally the same. Actually, I found out what the acronym is. It's Federal Family Educational Loan Program. So, okay. <laughs> okay. For, for people who wondered what the acronym <laughs> is. Okay. Keep going, Matt. Yeah. So they, they changed my FFEL loans to direct consolidation loans. And again, these are exactly the same to me. The Stafford, the Plus, the FFEL, and now the direct consolidation. Nothing changes for me. They move my FFEL to direct consolidation. Same monthly payment, same interest rate, same balance. Everything's exactly the same, except now it counts towards forgiveness. So at that point, I'm on track for forgiveness for two-thirds of my loan balance after 10 years of public service. And then the other third is not until 13 years of public service because those first three years didn't count because I had the wrong format. For no reason, right? When I called Sally May and said this, they could have said, um, oh, actually, FFEL loans don't count. Let me change this now. Nothing would have been different in any way in how I treat the loans or how the government treats the loans, except that those three years didn't count. How demoralizing was that to have that happen? It was very, very frustrating. Um, I think at the time, you know, I, I fought it at the time for a few months to basically be like, this is ridiculous, right? Like, count those three months, please. Um, and eventually I sort of gave up. And at that time, it was like, you know, there's six or seven years until I get any forgiveness. You know, that's a long time, whatever, I'll deal with this later. And then as I got closer and I'm looking at, you know, maybe I'd like to go into some other sort of career. Maybe I'd like to take some time off and, and be home with my kids. And that's, that's not an option because I've got those extra three years tacked on to the end. So that's been a very frustrating part of this process. Um, I will add that theoretically, the Biden administration this year has a temporary waiver that under the new temporary waiver rules, I should get credit for those three years and this should all be (laughs) back on the same track. But I have not been able to maneuver that system as of yet and still working on it. And, uh, you know, I've got I've got a little more hope again, (laughs) but it's it's a very it's a very unnecessarily complex system. Was it difficult for them to change those FF? ELP loans to whatever it is that they changed? Like, like, was that process complicated or was it like the person on the other side just typed a few things and they were like, we're going to send you an email and you'll be good to go? It was the latter. I mean, I, I obviously don't know how much work they do behind the scenes, but it was basically, I signed a piece of paper and they just, I guess, technically paid off the FFEL with a new direct consolidation loan. I have no idea what that looks like on the back end, but on the front end, it, it, there was nothing. I had, I had a phone call, I signed a paper, it was done. Wow. Right now, there, there's a lot of emotion around this potential policy of student loan forgiveness. And it seems like there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion and confusion and unfortunately politics that is impacting how people are viewing the potential of this happening. And I was curious about your read on the emotion around potential of this policy. You get a lot of Twitter vitriol when <laughs> when you share your story. And do you think it's fair of people to say, hey, <laughs> I paid all my loans. Why are people getting their loans forgiven? Or what's going on? What do you think? <laughs> It's, it's a tough thing to sort of parse. I mean, it, uh, I've said this before and also <laughs> have gotten attacked for it, but it is, it is surprising to me how much emotion is, is involved in this topic for a lot of people. For people who have loans, forgiveness can be 
could be life-changing, right? And for people who don't have loans, it has no impact whatsoever on your life. Um, And people fought me on that point um, saying, you know, maybe it means that there will be higher taxes at some point in the future, or maybe it'll mean some minor impact on inflation. um, And I can explain why those are wrong. But (laughs) in reality, it's, it's people are getting very, very emotional and it doesn't really have a material impact on their life. And I don't fully understand it. I think the most common pushback I got on, on that was, you know, the, the fairness argument, which I think the fairness argument with regard to student loans um, and loan forgiveness really focuses on the wrong, the wrong groups of people. I think when people are looking at, you know, is this fair? They're looking at generally, especially in the personal finance community, um, you know, you've got two people who graduated with the same amount of debt, got a job with the same salary, and one saved and lived like a college student to pay off their debt, and the other bought a new car and a big house and, you know, just made the minimum payments. And now it's not fair to reward the person who was not as responsible. But that's such a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the fairness argument when you're looking at the the big picture, right? I mean, we created the federal student loan program to make the American dream accessible to everyone. And with the rising costs of college and all of this, what we're actually doing is just saying, okay, now you can all go to college, but people whose parents had the money to pay for college, you get a nice big head start. People who had to take out loans, you're going to be weighed down and held back for years and years and delay starting a family, delay buying a house, delay getting the equity of a house, which you know means you're getting a, a later start on you know, building that generally generational wealth for most people. Um, and you're just perpetuating a system of unfairness where the wealthy have a head start on everything. And for some reason, we miss that entire piece of the puzzle when we're focused on this tiny little piece of the fairness argument of, okay, what about two similarly situated um, middle-class people who took out the same amount of loans. Is it weird to you that the federal government is a key part of this problem? As I've had conversations with my guests for this series, I'm really struck by how we are told to go and get an education, right? Like go get educated, go get, you know, as an African-American woman, this is a, a heavy, heavy trope, <laughs> in uh, conversations that are had in our families. Go get an education. It'll improve your lives. And Gen X and, and younger, I feel like we've been to a certain degree bamboozled. Not because education is bad. Education is wonderful. But that key piece, which is education has gotten to be really expensive. The question becomes, how is this tenable? Like, how can we sustain a situation like this? And we can't. What's the other option? If an undergrad degree is literally the equivalent of high school nowadays, and you have to go to grad school, where it seems to be where most of these problems really start to come up, what are we supposed to do? And then if you are not wanting to go to a university or college, but you prefer to go and get a master plumbing sort of certification or training or, you know, construction, that kind of thing, which is very, very lucrative, but then you go to a for-profit and then you're pushed into predatory loans that are basically government loans, federal loans. It's like, where do we turn? So I, I state this to say, what would you do if you were an advisor to the federal government? What would you do? What would you tell them to improve the program so that we're not penalized or just to improve attaining higher levels of education? What would you do differently? Because I think the big conversation, the big concern that a lot of my guests have brought up is this policy could move forward, but how do we avoid ending up where we are now with future generations? Yeah. Well, let me solve this crisis once and for all. Um, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a good answer for you. Honestly, it's, it is, it is entirely unsustainable um, that I, I'm not arguing with that at all. And, you know, I've, I've got two young kids and I, you know, created 529 accounts for them. And I really have no idea how to plan for what is college going to be, how expensive is college going to be in, you know, 16 years, because the system is entirely unsustainable. 
it is going to break at some point. I don't know when or how or what that will look like on the other end. I was um, curious to see <laughs> what you what you thought breaking would look like. Do you think that we're, I, I'm wondering, are we there now? And did COVID just speed up the, the reckoning? I think we'll, we'll find out. It's going to take time to shake out, right? I think it's possible that we end up with a system where, you know, we move to more of, you know, Zoom college, right? And that is less expensive because you don't have to pay for the facilities of a college, which ends up eating up a lot of the cost. And maybe that's where we go as we end up with more, uh, you know, we end up with cheaper electronic options. And then those bring down the costs of traditional schools by decreasing demand. Maybe it just keeps going the way it's going and gets to a point where, you know, it's so expensive and people are so angry that you get sort of a, a Bernie Sanders type solution of just the government's going to pay for everyone, you know, sit down, we're all fine. I really don't know what this could end up looking like. I think there's a lot of different routes it could take, and I'm not confident in any of one of them. If um, you were an advisor, what would you advise the Department of Education to do? Like, what would be three strategies or three, I don't know, three policies that you're like, look, Department of Education, could you at least do these three things? Yeah, I think so. I think this is actually a really interesting point to see where I think a lot of these conversations around loan forgiveness are frustrating to me, both in the direct, like the, the loan forgiveness conversation itself, and then the problem being so much harder to fix than it seems, right? Because if I'm advising the Department of Education, there's not a lot they can do without Congress. Ooh. And Congress is not going to do anything <laughs> in the near future. We are SOL. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? So a lot of the conversation around student loans, when I'm getting pushback from people um, about forgiveness generally, is people saying, you know, we, we shouldn't do forgiveness unless we can also fix the underlying problems. Or we shouldn't do forgiveness unless we can also, you know, send a check to people who have already paid off their loans. Or instead of blanket forgiveness, we should do this other policy proposal that I've just come up with that's nuanced and perfect. And that's all great and right, basically, right? Like we have to fix the underlying problems. But right now, the Department of Education, under existing law, has the power to forgive student loans. 20 USC 1082A for the nerds. That gives the <laughs> Secretary of Education the power to, to forgive loans held by the Department of Education. Any of those other proposals need to go, need, we need a new law. We need legislation to come from Congress. And if we need a new law, we need 60 votes in the Senate. And if we need 60 votes in the Senate, you're looking at finding an education proposal that can get the agreement of all 50 Democrats, which is very unlikely. And then even if you can achieve that, you need to find 10 Republicans who want to expand access to higher education. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not possible. It's not in the realm of possibility in this decade, at least. Right. So I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, how we can address the education issue. I don't have many suggestions for how we can actually realistically um, in our current political reality solve this crisis. You know, the, the Senate is just, it is there, it is blocking the way on just about everything that would be useful in solving the underlying crisis. And I, I don't know how to get around that. I, wow. I mean, that, I mean, you're not wrong, to be honest. Um, I had a whole different question, but my mind is blown right now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to, to, to uh, sidetrack this entire interview I'm like, with my was, rant about the Senate. <laughs> that was a downer, man. And, and now we're in a bear market. <laughs> like, <laughs> like literally as we started recording, I saw all the, we're in a bear market. I, my goal with this conversation or with this series is really to broaden the conversation around the policy. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to ask you a question that I didn't send you, which is let's assume that the, the administration is like, you know what, we're going to move forward with this thing because people are, we're getting close to midterms and 
we promised a thing and you know we we need to appease our base to some degree because it's clear that any policy they do or no policy no one's going to be like they're they can't make everyone happy right mm -hmm. so what would what amount would make people somewhat vaguely happy if you were to say okay mr president it looks like you're going to move forward with this thing and you know we we're not going to do the blanket forgiveness or let's do the blanket forgiveness or you, you've been talking about $10,000 and this is how we feel. What would you say is a number that makes sense? If any, what's going to move the needle for people, especially given that for the last two and a half years, most people have had their loans on pause and were able to do other, other things. I feel like there's pressure really building to figure this out before midterms. But if you were to talk to the president about like an amount that makes sense, what's the amount to you? I mean, I, I think that I will start by saying that Elizabeth Warren has done more research on this than I would imagine anyone ever because she is Elizabeth Warren and she uh, researches the details of every single aspect of every single thing. Mm -hmm. And um, her conclusion was $50,000 is where you need to be to make sure you are helping all of the people who need help and not helping people like me <laughs> who are doing fine and don't need that full forgiveness, doctors and lawyers who have massive balances, but also large enough incomes to make that work or a separate public service program to, to deal with that. I think when you're looking at the people who need the most help, it's usually surprisingly the people with smaller balances. It's the people who took out loans for college and then didn't graduate or you know, took out loans for a community college and then ended up still with a, a lower paying job and they're trying to make, they're still struggling to make ends meet. Even though their loan balance is not as high as someone like me, they still are having much more uh, trouble making, uh, making ends meet. I think the data shows that the, even something like Biden's $10,000 proposal is going to give the most help to the people who need the most help. And especially, looking at, you know, obviously student loan balances um, very disproportionately affect black borrowers compared to white borrowers. And looking at that, that $10,000 line, you're helping a lot more black borrowers who are struggling than the white borrowers who are generally fine paying it off. Um, so you have all of those different aspects where, you know, something like $10,000 um, is not my preferred policy solution, but it is going to do the most to help the people who need the most help. I would take more, the, the, the higher, the better uh, for me, because I think take those tax dollars and help people with them, right? That's why we, we have taxes is to help people. So I don't particularly care if we are helping people who don't need as much help. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with, uh, with spending more than necessary to capture the biggest possible net of people who, who could use the help. But I do think that the, the data shows that anything in that ten dollars to $50,000 range is going to help a lot of people who could really, really use the help. Do you think that having a talking point, which is accurate, that a lot of Black and Brown borrowers are really going to benefit from the policy is part of what is creating the negative feedback on the policy, just with what's going on in the country. Do you think that that's what part of why people are low-key anti-government student loan forgiveness? Because they're like, this this is going to benefit people that we don't want, want to benefit. It's hard to say on this. I think that is on generally every <laughs> program that we have to help people in the United States. That is a major cause of backlash. Yeah. Um, just being completely honest, we we are a very racist country. And that is behind, you know, even back to, you know, Ronald Reagan and the welfare queens myth, you know, race is very much a, a factor in pushback on pretty much every government program. Heather McGee has a really great book on this called The Sum of Us, uh, which I would recommend everyone read. But it's basically saying, sh showing how over, over American history, um, as we're, you know, leaving Jim Crow and starting to have public programs, you know, help people who are not white, <laughs> support for those programs immediately drops off and white voters are okay with hurting themselves in order to prevent those benefits from going to black and brown neighbors. 
it's hard to, to differentiate between that aspect of the student loan debate versus um, the sort of blue collar, white collar uh, issues along political lines, right? The, the liberal elite with their educations. Mm. Um, and, you know, why should we be, be helping people who have already gotten through college when, uh, you know, real Americans get their high school degree and, and go work on the farm um, or whatever the, your, your picture is there. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to rally support against this on political lines, on racial lines, on class lines. And I think all of those contribute. And I, I don't know how much of how much of each is is sort of weighing into that, or if they all just kind of stack on top of each other as a as a sort of macro identity thing to to push against it. I'm gonna ask a question. Like let's imagine we're in an imaginary world <laughs> and you could design a program or you could address the issue of school affordability. What would you do if you were, if we had a Congress that was passing bills and things were smooth, what were, would be the top three things you would do to change the experience that we're having right now with school affordability? I mean, if I have unlimited, <laughs> unlimited power in this world, yes, um, I'm making all college free. We, we live in a country that we like to say is a meritocracy. And yet we are saying your starting point in life is dependent on how much money your parents had. If we want the United States to be an actual meritocracy, if we want everyone to reach their potential, um, you know, both for the fact that, <laughs> that we should be rooting for everyone and also for the country's GDP, for innovation, for, uh, for all sorts of development, we need to let, give everyone the space to reach their full potential. And to do that, everyone should be able to access whatever education would help them get there. And I think that the only real way to get to that meritocracy's place, and obviously it's not, it's not possible to get to an actual ideal meritocracy. There are all sorts of other issues, but on the educational front, you need to have equal access to education. You cannot say, you know, Anyone can get to this school, but once you get there, you have to start, you know, uh, 10 squares back on, on this game uh, if you happen to have parents who are born, uh, who, your parents who don't have as much money, right? We need to be able to give everyone a level playing field. And I think the only way you actually can do that is by having the government subsidize, subsidize education for people who can't necessarily afford it. The entire loan system needs to be scrapped thrown away and we need to start start over and give everyone access uh, if we actually want this country to to reach its potential and let every person in the country reach their potential. Sorry, that was a <laughs> I like a, your rants actually. <laughs> As you were ranting, I was thinking, <laughs> um, <laughs> what I thought about was the fact that there is a very clear point when schools began to get really expensive. And I I wonder why the like boomers don't understand how different the experience is, especially because they were sending their kids to college and, and having them get loans and things like that. I feel like they were disconnected from our, from our reality. It's so bizarre to me. So like what my older relatives paid for school versus what I paid is so, so different that it, it I don't even think they can comprehend it. Yeah, it's an entirely different world. Um, if you look at look at those uh, inflation charts that break break inflation down to its its different components and in different industries, looking at wages compared to education costs and healthcare costs over time is it's a joke, right? The wages have been stagnant for years, and yet the costs of education have gone absolutely through the roof multiples, multiples faster than any other type of inflation. It's, it is wild. It is a very different world. People on Twitter will say, well, I paid my way through college. And it's like, okay, grandpa, like, that's not a thing anymore. <laughs> right? Like, I, I graduated with $250,000 of loan debt. Uh, what job do you have for me that's going to make me $250,000 in excess money over my three-year law school career that I can do while in law school? 
mm. right? It's not, <laughs> it's a very different world and, and people really haven't caught up. And I think, uh, you know, that reality just isn't sticking with a lot of people. What I find very frustrating is these are the same people who talk about how France is such a great country. We love Switzerland. Norway is awesome. Why can't we be like, why? Like they, they will, these same people who are saying no to policy are the same people who talk about how great these other countries are that they visit. And they seem not to be catching on to the fact that all the like progressive Democrats in the U S are actually somewhat moderate compared to folks in Europe. <laughs> that, yeah, that's the part 100%. that's insane to me. So it's like this, there's a, a baseline standard that folks around other um, parts of the world, other quote unquote Western countries are just starting at. They live at a baseline level. And even the most conservative folks over there are like, oh yeah, we like this, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's so frustrating because I think part of what hurts us is we don't go anywhere. We don't have passports. We, we don't have the time. Even if we have passports, the majority of Americans don't even have the time to experience other lived realities. And so when we advocate for these policies, it's really difficult for for people, even when they will vote against their own best interests, it's hard to get them to get it. Like they're going to stick it to me, you know, as a black woman, because we, I don't want to help Michelle, but they don't, they don't seem to get the bigger picture, which is, yeah, you stuck it to me, but dang, you stuck it to your two kids. Mima, you stuck it to your two grandkids because now they can't even afford to go to college. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's a really frustrating thing to, to, experience and observe because it's like I wish everyone well and I want everyone to have the same experience and I I feel like we've dug a hole and the sand keeps coming in like we're digging a hole right the sand keeps coming in and we keep digging the hole and like we can't like it, it it's never ending yeah and and we have this this myth of you know anyone can make it in America and then when you look at the statistics that's more true in Europe right? If you're born poor, right? Let's, let's even look at just those, those white voters, right? If you're born poor as a white person in the United States, you have less chance of making it to the middle class than if you're born as a poor white person in Europe, in any of these countries where, um, you know, they have access to education. And it really is just sort of people have bought into this, this myth of, you know, America is the place where we have the most social mobility. And it's just not true. It used to be true. It used to be true. And it's just not anymore. And statistics, you know, over and over and over again, keep bearing this out that the countries with more progressive policies, they have the, the systems where you can actually break out of poverty and end that generational cycle much more easily than you can in the United States. I feel like we're not going to solve this problem in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I have two last questions for you. I... I wonder if you could talk about, and I feel like my stomach growled really loudly and hopefully the mic didn't pick it up. Um, <laughs> could you talk about how you imagine your life is going to be when those loans, when that financial weight is gone? What's life going to be like? Can you even imagine that? <laughs> I, so I, I can imagine that only because, you know, especially during the pandemic, it really hit a point where it was, it was like, I've got a lot of money saved up, right? I've been, I've been working towards financial independence. I've been investing for years and years, you know, um, and I've, I've got this chunk of money. The pandemic meant, you know, I had a, a, a one-year-old, when did the pandemic start? I had a two-year-old and an mm -hmm. infant um, and daycares all shut down. And my wife and I were both working full-time. So we were working from home full-time, which meant that we actually, you know, could keep our jobs, but we were working from home full-time trying to have, take care of a two-year-old and an infant. And we had the money saved up that I could have walked away for a time being and stayed home and taken care of the kids and then gone back to work later. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't because the odds of getting back into 
a public service job where it was too risky to walk away with a few years left on my forgiveness. Oh. And there's no real, you know, there's no real path. I, I have $330,000 of loans right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's no real path to walk away from a career and then restart and be confident that I can deal with $330,000 of debt. Wow. So yes, I'm looking forward to that not being something hanging over my head and locking me into a job, right? I like the idea of being able to take time off, being able to move to a job that may not be with a qualifying employer, you know, find something else where I can help people, but may not necessarily qualify for loan forgiveness, which has been sort of the defining factor in, in my job hunts uh, thus far in my career. Wow. So really just having that flexibility because I am not locked into a very narrow set of options is, is something I'm very much looking forward to. When is the big year? Cause it's not quite, it's, it, I feel like you still have a year or two to go. So <laughs> oh, back to the, back to the, uh, the program being unnecessarily complicated. Um, so first I had, I had the two different dates, right? Because one was three years behind the other. So that under the Trump administration, I was told my dates were April, 2023. And then I think June, 2026 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, the Biden administration, when they, they issued this temporary waiver where they loosened the restrictions, they told FedLoan to go through and recalculate everyone's dates with this new, um, this new broader standard. Now, somehow, I have five different dates. Wait, what? So I have um, some in October, which is great. That's much sooner. Of 2022? Uh, October 2022. Oh, wow. Some in December 2022. Okay. Some January 2023. All right. Some February 2023. Okay, this is ridiculous. And then the 2026 one still. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, going back to the unnecessary complexity <laughs> of the program. Mm -hmm. um, wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm currently trying to negotiate, <laughs> negotiate navigate that and get everything on one track. Ideally, I can bump everything up to October. That would be lovely, but uh, it's not, not an easy process to navigate. And I, I think you pointed out just having this, the bandwidth to do this. I am one human. Okay. Mm -hmm. I am one person and I'm going to be candid and say that I, I delayed several things because of debt including my student loans. Um, and, and I don't necessarily, I, I don't want to say I don't regret it, but I think it was the right decision, especially when COVID hit and things like that. And one of the things I think about right now is, especially in having these conversations is there's a bandwidth that people have, and it's, it's pretty short right now. Mm -hmm. And having to go back and forth with lenders over massive amounts of debt is really hard. It's low key, really scary. What if we fuck things up? And I wonder if there's a percentage of people who are just like, fuck it. Like this is too much for me to deal with right now because there's all these other things. Yeah. I would not be surprised by that at all. I have like, it has been a struggle for, for me to find the time to manage this. And I'm like in a pretty solid position. Right. And <laughs> it's, it is very difficult to navigate and I'm sure that we are leaving people out who should be getting this benefit because of that. I'm 100% sure there are people that should be getting uh, loan forgiveness based on doing public service work who are not going to get it because of all these hoops we have to jump through. For the past two, no, I have two, two last questions. For the past two, <laughs> sorry, no, I'm enjoying this conversation so much. So for the past two years, two and a half plus years, basically, student loans have been paused for a large percentage uh, for, for federal loan borrowers. Is there an argument to be made that during inflation, now we're in a bear market, literally the day of this recording, it's the indicators have hit that, that metric, that if we say, if the government says, you know what, we're going to unpause this thing, let her, let her rip, we've got inflation, that this could be a financial disaster for a lot of families? Or are we, or is it back to that? Well, you borrowed the money. You had two and a half years to like plan for this. Didn't you think you were going to? 
pay for this again? What are your thoughts around just the conversation connected to the pause? Well, I can say the pause has helped me a lot. (laughs) And also I didn't particularly need the help, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the, one of the things that, um, so let me backtrack a little bit. (laughs) I think one of the things that we are looking at with the combination of sort of the pause potentially ending and loan forgiveness being under consideration is that you can kind of address the difficulties for a lot of people by saying, okay, if you have under, you know, we're forgiving the first $20,000 or however much, um, and everyone else who still has debt, we're going to restart the, that, right? Because the people with, again, the people with the, who are struggling the most tend to be the ones with the lower, the lower balances. So you can solve a lot of the problems with restarting by having some level of blanket forgiveness. Um, there are still going to be people who are struggling, and I don't particularly know how to, how best to address that from sort of the, the policy standpoint, right? If we're not going to forgive the loans, presumably they have to restart at some point. Right. Um, so, you know, we're at a point where on one hand, unemployment is pretty low. So people are actually working and have some income um, as opposed to the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of people were out of work. And on the other hand, having the doctors and lawyers with larger balances start paying back those loans and sucking that money out of the economy is, is going to have some level, I don't know how large, but some level of, of deflationary impact by you know slowing the economy a bit, right? When I restart my loans, I will be paying over $2,000 a month on loans Ooh. that I <laughs> yeah, previously just had access to. Taking that money away from me, <laughs> not great for me, but it is going to slow the economy by you know that little bit, multiply that by all the people with with large balances, um, you know, it sucks for all of us, <laughs> but it is going to be to have that sort of deflationary impact in the in the broader picture without hurting a lot of those lower income folks who are you know struggling to to make ends meet. You know, there there are obviously exceptions to that, and people are going to get run over no matter when you restart it. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, the best approach to to solve that issue. You mentioned that you had Navient um, like servicing your loans for a minute. And I, I feel like I have not talked to, I haven't talked enough about the Navient forgiveness that's about to happen soon. So as this series starts to release, Navient will be contacting people and being like, hey, we're going to forgive your loans. I think that people have forgotten about this because it's just been like so much is going on. Navient had a lawsuit where they lost, basically they lost the judgment. They have a lot of money that they will be um, forgiving. A lot of people who are eligible for for this, especially who attended for-profit schools, but there are a lot of folks who borrowed years ago who are impacted by this this decision, who didn't go to for-profit schools. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that. Do you think that, what's your read on just that part of the, the forgiveness landscape in terms of those Navient people? Like, have you heard any chatter around that or anything that comes up? There's, this is a very oddly put together question and rambling, but what what are your (laughs) thoughts about the Um, Navient part? I honestly don't know much about the Navient um, forgiveness generally. Um, I know that the, the administration has done a lot to quietly sort of give targeted forgiveness to different populations, um, which has been good, like some People who you know went to for-profit colleges, um, people who went to colleges that lost their accreditation, um, people who are dealing with disabilities, like that sort of thing. And I think you know any sort of targeted forgiveness on that front is is good. Um, but I don't know the specifics of the Navient uh, issue. This is the last question, which is why is it that the U.S. government was able to bail out the banks and the auto industry? We're able to allocate money towards Ukraine, which obviously we should. We're able to allocate money to all these other things. We have the money for this. Why is it so hard to serve our own citizens? Like, why why is it so difficult to do the right thing, I guess, is my question. 
when we we help everybody else it doesn't make sense yeah um I mean, I can give you another rant about the Senate if you'd like. (laughs) You know what? Like, share freely. This is a safe space. Um, No, I mean, I think on, on, you know, on Ukraine, we're looking at uh, there's still some some bipartisanship on foreign policy. I think with the economic crisis, you had uh, Republicans who were on board with, you know, bailing out the financial sector and then Democrats who said, okay, this is something that we need to do to stabilize the economy. So we will vote for something that we would normally be against. Um, and you kind of get everyone on board that way. Um, I think with, if you're trying to help average citizens um, and you're trying to help people with college degrees and you're trying to you know, expand access to education, uh, there's, there's no bipartisanship on that. Um, there's, there's only one side that's interested in, in moving the ball on that. And even that side is, is not particularly on the same page about how to do that. Again, uh, the problem with everything in America is the Senate. And I stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get an argument from me. So for people, for listeners who would like to follow you on Twitter, you have a really cool project that you occasionally work on who want to cheer you on when you start posting your paid off. <laughs> series. I hope you do that. How can we follow you and how can we support you? I am on Twitter at Matt Lane writes, M-A-T-T-L-A-N-E-W-R-I-T-E-S. And I am nowhere else right now. <laughs> I- hey, that's a, you got two small kids. Do you really need to be anywhere else? Uh, nope. nope. <laughs> I have limited enough time as it is. So, uh, Twitter is where I'm at. I'm there more than I should be, but that is the only place I'm at. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts. And I appreciate you being a part of this project.